Good evening and welcome to Slam the Gavel, the show that tells it all regarding family court, other court issues, as well as CPS. I am your host, Marianne Petrie. Bradley's mother, Narcus Golden, passed away four months ago. Bradley is autistic and needs structured routine therapies he receives for his autism six days a week. However, Italy just entrusted Bradley to Italian social services. If he is ruled to go back, he will face the next three to four years in the Italian foster care system where he can't speak or understand the language. He will be then taken away from the only family he has ever known. Please call Governor Hogel, New York State, 518-474-8390. That's 518-474-8390 to voice your concerns to please keep Bradley here safe in these United States. Hashtag keep Bradley safe. I have a brand new guest on. I have Brian Vukadinovich. Uh, he is a retired educator in Indiana and has served as executive director of Posner Center of Justice for Pro Se's based in Chicago, Illinois, for retired federal court of appeals judge Richard A. Posner. He has successfully represented himself in state and federal court proceedings in Indiana and won a federal jury verdict against his former public school corporation employer in Indiana in March 2016 for violating his due process rights in a five-day trial where he successfully represented himself against the corporation's team of lawyers. He has received national acclaim for his self-representation ability and is believed to be the only person who has ever won a federal civil rights jury trial by representing himself without a lawyer. Brian Vukadinovich is very passionate about social justice issues and the federal judiciary's indifference to people's rights to fairness and justice. Brian Vukadinovich is sought after speaker and was a presenter at the 2022 Martin Luther King Jr. celebration event hosted by Indiana University Social Justice Conference. And in September 2018, he was invited to speak to a Yale Law School class. Brian Vukadinovich has done numerous television, radio, and podcast interviews and has been a featured guest on the television program Pro Se Nation based in Princeton, New Jersey. He has done extensive writing on judicial corruption issues, which may be seen on his website, which has been rated as one of the top 15 best website blogs on the internet, coming in at number seven. I totally welcome you to my podcast, Brian Vukadinovich. How are you doing? And we're going to have a great conversation because we're going to turn this podcast into two parts. I know it's coming. So where, where are you at with everything and how are you doing? Hi, Marianne. First of all, thank you for inviting me on your great show. Uh, I think we do have a lot of information that we'll be able to provide to your audience that they'll be interested in and Hopefully, some of it will be helpful to them as well. Uh, I've seen several of your uh, previous podcasts, and you are one of the few people out there who are actually doing a great job getting this information out to the public. Uh, we have a very serious problem in our judiciary across mm -hmm. the country, uh, from one part of the country to the other and everything in between, and we need to address things. And 
Well, that's why we need people like you and what you're doing. So thank you so much for what you're doing. It helps me get the information out that I need to get out to the people. And we're going to certainly do that on your program. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for your kind words. You know, and um, you've also written um, a book as well. And that is, um, well, it's behind you. I see it behind you in in the, um, let me see here. I did have a picture of it here. I did take a picture of it. Uh, but tell us about your book and how you started that. Because um, it's, so, it's just so hard to write a book, people it, think. Yes, it's very hard. Uh, I wrote uh, Motion for Justice, I Rest My Case. That's the yep. uh, image of it behind me here. And actually, I've written another one that's going to come out here in a couple of days that we'll, mm -hmm. we'll probably talk about here in a little bit. It's a little bit of an extension of, of Motion for Justice. So, oh, definitely. Uh, I mean, I, I could, uh, the facts and circumstances, we could probably have 10 shows on it. So I'll try to be as you know, <laughs> brief as I can here. But what happened was I was, uh, uh, I was, I was a school teacher and a basketball coach in Indiana uh, back in the day. And, and in 1981, uh, me and my mom, we were in a bank in Valparaiso, Indiana. We were just out for the day. It was a Saturday and we were going to do some <laughs> shopping. And, and we went into the bank, do, do a little bit of banking business, and we were going to have a great day shopping and so forth. And then what happened was there apparently was a problem at the bank uh, with somebody was out, out in the parking lot uh, doing something. He was in a pickup truck and almost hitting cars and so forth. And then the, the bank people called the police. And so the police came and me and my mom were already in the bank when they came and they just went completely crazy, just completely out of control, grabbed me, threw me up against the wall, roughed me up pretty good. And I'm trying to tell them what, you know, ask them what's going on here. You know, I mean, what are you, why are you doing this to me? And the bank mm -hmm. people are trying to get them off of me. My mom's trying to get them off of me. They were just crazy. I mean, we've seen a lot of things these days with right. videos. People are taking, but now back in those days, there were no videos. So it was very, yeah. it's hard to prove the stuff back in the day as, as opposed to how it is these days. So to make a long story short, after they finally realized that, that they had the wrong person. Oh, yeah, they instead of just apologizing to me and, oh. and letting me go, well, you know, now we have to hit them with, with some kind of charge to make this thing look good. So they hit me with a, a bogus criminal charge of some kind. Uh, it was like resisting arrest or, or disorderly conduct or something, some nonsense thing. So to make a long story short, uh, and I'll get into the legalities on, on pro se, you know, litigation, because this is what kind of uh, triggered this whole thing. Mm -hmm. And then and then um, so we, I went to court. I had to hire a lawyer at the time. I went to court and the judge heard the evidence, listened to the testimony and found me not guilty. And he really he was one of the rare judges. Most judges actually want to side with the with the police are inclined to do that very mm -hmm. much. But this particular judge, his name was Bryce Billings. He was actually a very good judge. He didn't put up with that nonsense. And he chastised the police and said to them, you know, you should have just apologized and let them go. Instead, you put them through all of this. Well, then it became it became in news in the newspapers and so forth. And the police chief, I, I filed uh, 
uh, uh, wrongful arrest uh, mm -hmm. lawsuit and, and brutality and so forth. And I was awarded an out-of-court settlement. And then the police chief made a public statement in the local newspaper about all his officers did no wrong. They shouldn't have paid any money and all of that stuff that, that we still hear these days yeah. instead of being responsible about it. Right. So then moving on, the same officer. Now, up until that point, I was, you know, I was a teacher, a basketball coach, not never in trouble with the law and so forth. And then and then I get arrested again by the same guy, the exact same guy. So same nonsense. Uh, puts, we're out, he throws me on top of his. I was at a grocery store, same town, same officer. I was at a grocery store, throws me up on his car, starts giving me the third degree and all of this and all of that. And then uh, so I I got away from him and I went in the store. I wanted to call my brother to let him know mm -hmm. what was going on. I, I run into the store and uh, and there was an employee of the store who saw this happening. And as I as I ran by her, she said she asked me if I was OK. And I said to her, call the police. Uh -huh. I thought, well, I mean, I hope the same police department doesn't come. But I need we need some help here because this thing's going to go crazy, going to be out of hand. So then uh, again, uh, and then uh, they they come in the store, arrest me in front of, you know, the store people. Everybody's probably thinking they're, you know, robbing the store or something. Who knows? Uh. So then they arrest me. They put me in the back seat of a police car, handcuffed behind my back, German Shepherd in the back seat with me. Nobody else in the car. Again, you know, no videos at the time. You know, people would be outraged. You know, what what is a person going to do if the dog attacks that person and he can't mm -hmm. defend himself and so forth? So we go through the proceedings. The mm -hmm. police deny, oh, we never put him in the back seat, you know, handcuffed with the dog. We never threw him up against the car and all of that stuff. Well, the employee at the at the store, uh, I, I provided her name and so forth. Again, I had to hire the lawyer at the time. And then and then the, they called her in, took her deposition. She made a statement to the police and told them, yes, they slammed him again on top of the police car, which they denied mm -hmm. and, and so forth. So then when the prosecutor saw, you know what, we can't really uh, pursue this thing here, they ended up dropping the charge. So the nightmare just, and then I became, I was arrested 10 times, 10 times. I could not go to the grocery store without getting arrested for not having my headlights on at 427 PM mm -hmm. and you name it, I was arrested for it. So then at some point, I'm going to get into the litigation, the pro se aspect of things now, uh, at at some point now, now there were five separate criminal cases pending against me, not five charges, like you could have five charges and one arrest, five separate, separate, you know, arrests, situations. So then I started doing some research because, I, you know, it was costing a lot of money to hire lawyers and so forth. So I started doing some research and I went to the to the law library and I discovered a law in, in Indiana, and I'm sure that uh, probably all states have a similar law where it's basically a speedy trial rule, where when the state brings somebody to to prosecution, that they have a certain time period that they have to that they have to prosecute to put that person on trial mm -hmm. or they have to dismiss the charge one or the other. 
which is actually a good law because otherwise they just they'll just keep charges hanging on you for 10 years and and so forth so i discovered this rule this time period and i believe it was it was six months i believe mm -hmm. was the time period so i and then these charges against me were anywhere from a year to three years just sitting there they're 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 uh thing was you know if we keep arresting him this is a guy that fought back he beat us and we don't like that we're not willing to accept that so we're just going to make his life miserable oh. so they went to my school talked to my principals and all the teachers why are the police here and all of that stuff so i was dealing with all of that so then i went to when i when i discovered that law i went to my lawyer and i asked him i, I said listen uh I have a question for you here. I did a little bit of research and I discovered this, this law in Indiana where if the charges aren't brought within a certain time period, mm -hmm. I believe it was six months, that the prosecution must dismiss the case. And then I said, uh, so am I correct about that in my interpretation of that law? And my lawyer says to me, well, it's not that easy. Those were his exact words to me. Oh. So... I said to him, I didn't say it was easy. I asked you a question. Mm -hmm. Yes or no? Is my interpretation correct? Is this such a law in Indiana? Yes or no? That's what my question is. And he wanted to stay on this. Well, it's not that easy and all of that stuff. And I said, well, listen, here's the deal. You will tomorrow, by the end of the business day, file a motion to dismiss each one of these bogus criminal cases that are filed against me. Or if you don't, I will do it on my own. And his exact words to me, I'll never forget this. You're not filing a damn thing. This is my lawyer now talking to me. And your audience mm -hmm. needs to understand that your employer works for you. Your lawyer works for you. You are the employer. Your lawyer is the employee. And yeah. under the canons of every state, it states that the lawyer will do what the, what the person who hired that lawyer asks the lawyer to do so long as it is within the law. Mm -hmm. That's in every uh, legal canon in, in every state. I'm, I'm sure of that. Mm -hmm. So he, you know, he was very uncomfortable knowing that I went out there and I did a little research. These lawyers don't want people to know how things work, because the longer they can keep things going and and keep the muddies watered with things, they make mm -hmm. a lot of money. Well, you know, now I have to do this and I have to charge you this. It's all money. It's it's very little to nothing to do about justice mm -hmm. and doing what's right. It's all about money with lawyers. So I said to him, when he, when he said to me, you're not filing a damn thing, I fired him right on the spot, right mm -hmm. then and there. I said, well, you are fired. You're done. Okay. So I went home. My brother asked me, you know, how did it go? And I told him, well, I fired the lawyer. And he, and he asked me, what are you going to do now? And I said, I am going to represent myself. So I went to my, uh, your audience, probably a lot of them probably have never seen a typewriter before because everything's, yeah. everything's computers. And a lot of people have never really done anything. But back in those days, there weren't computers. And, you know, so I took my old Smith Corona typewriter mm -hmm. that I had with me that I had from college and so forth. 
So I typed out motions to dismiss. I had to do it separate times, each one, because it wasn't the word processing. So it's a little bit harder to do stuff. So I, I type each one oh, out individually. Yeah. I take it to the courthouse. I file all of the motions. And guess what? The judge grants every one of my motions and he dismisses all of the criminal cases against me. Oh, awesome. So, so what does that what does that say? I'm paying a lawyer. He should actually be telling me, hey, listen, we're going to file these. This is what the law says. This is what we're going to do. But he didn't do that. He actually wanted to fight that. He wanted to resist that. So right then and there, I knew lawyers are not to be trusted. Mm -hmm. so that was my first experience. So, uh, you know, after that, I kept getting arrested. I kept representing myself 10 times total, starting from the first one. And then uh, I kept getting, you know, I went to hearings and filed my motions and got charges dismissed and so forth. And then uh, I bought a, I bought a, a legal dictionary, which I still have the same one to this day. So mm -hmm. I could start learning the terms and so forth. So I started learning the terms. I started uh, reading books. I went to the law library. I, I learned how to do uh, case law research and so forth. I went to a lot of trials and I watched trials. I watched how, you know, lawyers did trials and how judges, you know, responded to certain things and so forth. I would go to Chicago if there was a big trial. I mean, I went to see, I don't know if people will remember F. Lee Bailey. Oh, yes. Yes. I, I, I he was, he was huge. He was probably the top you mm -hmm. know, lawyer in the country at the time and so forth, did a lot of big things. So there was a trial in Chicago and I said, well, hey, this is my opportunity. And so I went and watched him uh, conduct his trial. I actually got, got a chance to meet him. I had his book and I took it with me and I got an opportunity. He was very, very kind. Actually, I got an opportunity out in the hallway to meet him and he signed my book for me and so forth. So that's that's how you learn. You know, talking about pro se litigation, uh, I know, you know, because you, you've done a lot of shows on it and so forth and talked to a lot of people. And and uh, um, it, it's a very hard thing to do, and and most most of them try to wing it. To be quite mm -hmm. honest about mm -hmm. it, uh, they they try to wing it. They do their best, but it's a very very hard thing to do. You have to really do your homework, and you a lot of them would like some sympathy for what happened to them, which is understandable, mm -hmm. but. You're not going to get that too much in the courts, actually. It's going to mm -hmm. be you're walking in there without a lawyer. Why are you in here without a lawyer? They have a big attitude against oh, the yes. process. And well, understand something. Uh, if you're not if you're going to represent yourself, you're going to be bound by all of the rules and the laws and and all of that stuff. They just, you know, make it so inhumane mm -hmm. that it's, you know, very, very hard to understand, actually. So this is what pro se's are against. Mm -hmm. um, they're up against the wall. It's a very hard thing to do. Yeah, you have to be willing to handle a lot of verbal abuse. You I will, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, well said. A lot of verbal abuse by the lawyers, mm -hmm. for sure, and not and not just verbal abuse uh, in writing. They will file pleadings and and be very negative and derogatory against mm -hmm. you. And the judges, when they're uh, addressing you in court, will look down on you as a second class citizen mm -hmm. and and so forth. 
And that's the problem. This is why we need judicial reforms in this country. And if I could, mm -hmm. I would like to let your audience know, and I tell and I tell all of the pro says that that I get you know am contacted about with things. Uh, I tell the pro says that there is a a congressional law. It's the Judiciary Act of 1789. And it's the right to a person's right to self-representation. And here's what it states. In all courts of the United States, the parties may plead and manage their own causes personally. That's the Judiciary Act of 1789. So my point is, it is a federal law. Now, a lot of the family courts are under the umbrella of the state courts. Mm -hmm. And so, but the state courts are bound by federal law. Now, state courts have their own particular rules and case laws and so forth for particular cases and so forth. But the, the federal law supersedes state law. So the Judiciary Act of 1789 covers everything. And Congress has mandated by law that pro se's have a right to self-representation. I don't even, I'm not sure if judges, if, if a lot of judges even know that, even know about that law. And many of them, if they do know about it, they ignore it. Mm -hmm. And this is the problem that we're having in our country. Mm -hmm. So this is why we need a, you know, we need reforms and we need the people to step up to the plate and and uh, now remember now the judiciary is we have three forms of government in our country we have the executive branch and we have the the judicial branch I'm drawing a blank here um um. Legislative is that the it? legislative blank exactly. I'm sorry, I, I drew a blank. Oh, that's okay. Yeah, that's, yeah. I, I'm not doing so hot this yeah. morning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The legislative branch, the the senators, the the elected officials that we put in office, and of course the the executive branch would be the president and so forth. But now, with those three branches, the one branch of government that we the people are basically powerless that we can't do much about is the judicial branch. Mm -hmm. We can we can vote the president out of office in the executive branch. We can vote the representatives and the senators out of office in the legislative branch. But when it comes to the judicial branch, we basically have no power. Mm -hmm. And something's very wrong there because it is one of the three forms of government that we have. Everything that happens in the in the judiciary is it and it's basically a secret type society. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They they get to do judges get to do whatever they want basically mm -hmm. behind closed doors. This is state and federal judges, oh, and yes. and uh, federal judges are appointed for life. So bar you know barring you know them going out and just uh, shooting somebody on the street, it's it's very hard and almost impossible to get rid of them. There's been very few instances in the, in the history of the country where federal judges have been impeached. Now, it's happened a few times. Uh, I mean, I, I've got a lot of this information out there. People want to read up on it. So what we need is now I'll give you an example here. I've got a I've got a, a 
uh, current situation going on right now, going back to all of this police stuff, mm-hmm. I went to, I had a, a civil rights trial. I believe it was, I, it was, it was somewhere in the mid eighties. So I went to, I went to the trial and I was representing myself. Now we were in a federal trial, had a, had a very bad judge. His name was James Moody in Indiana, in the Northern district of Indiana, in Hammond, Indiana, Indiana. So now to win a case, you have to produce evidence to win a case. That's mm-hmm. all there is to it. And such as the in March 2016, we'll probably talk about that here in a little bit. I, I did a federal jury trial. We had a five-day jury trial and I and I won the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was the judge allowed me to present evidence. That's the key. The jury has to know what's going on. But this particular judge back in the mid-80s, my case was against the police. And uh, basically, the judges are, are pro-police. And one of the problems with appointment of judges are they, a lot of them come from the, the sector of government. They were prosecutors, states' attorneys, and so forth. So they kind of they have these biases already built in when they become a judge. Yes, they take an oath. I'm going to do right by the people and follow the, all of that stuff. And they don't follow that stuff. I'm, I'm sorry. They Mm-mm. just don't. I, we could do a show on that alone. Trust me. We, we will. <laughs> Certainly happy to do that. And uh, and then uh, so what happened was I appealed the the judge's rulings and so forth. So it goes to the Seventh Circuit, U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit in Chicago. And and uh, so they uh, at the trial, the judge, there were two key elements that would have basically won the case for me automatically if the judge would have allowed it into evidence. One was I had, you know, as I mentioned, they kept arresting me over and over. So I started carrying a tape recorder with me in the car. So mm-hmm. I would have, because it, at that time there was no video cameras and so forth. It's mm-hmm. your word against them. Judges and the public want to believe everything. All oh, the police do no wrong. So I taped them on one of the, on one of the false arrests, mm-hmm. same department. So I taped them and, and I've got them right on the tape. And one of them, one of the uh, police officers, they're all laughing about arresting me. It's all on the tape. They're all laughing. One of them, one of them says, I'm not going to say the word here. Uh, I don't want to insult anybody in the audience, but one of them, they can figure it out. One of them said, F him. Mm-hmm. I'm going to get the SOB, mm-hmm. but in those words. So it's right on the tape. F him. Mm-hmm. I'm going to get the son- SOB. So then... And they're laughing and having fun and games with all of this, something Mm -hmm. that a jury would certainly be interested in, find Mm -hmm. very interesting. It would show this was all a game. The judge would not allow me to play that tape in front of the jury, would not allow it. So then, and by the way, that was, it's very important to mention that was a, an item of evidence. There's a real formal procedure. You have to list your evidence. There's a pretrial order. It was listed as evidence in the case. It was on the pretrial order as an exhibit and so forth. The judge said, no, we're not letting that in. And then there was a police officer that actually was an honest police officer. I don't know if you remember Serpico from mm-hmm. back in the day from New York, yep. one of the good guys that came, you know, he was exposing the police corruption and went through holy hell for doing it. Well, there there was uh there was a Serpico in the Valparaiso Police Department. His name was John Curls. And he was one of the good guys. 
I didn't know him. I'd never met him, met him before. And, and, uh, well, what happened was he, the area we live in is not a metropolitan, metropolitan area and people kind of know everybody, you know, around and so forth. And, and then, so he saw my brother one day at a restaurant, he knew he was my brother and so forth. And, and he approached my brother and he told my brother, boy, I, you know, I really didn't like what was going on with your brother and so forth. And mm -hmm. he told my brother how he was listening to how the police there at Valparaiso were scheming to arrest me uh -huh. and, and do all of these things to me. And uh, so my brother told me about that. So I went to talk to him and, and he told me that he told me about, it. he said, yeah, he, he said, but you know, I heard it all. I didn't like it. And he said, that's actually, I left the police force because of all the nonsense like that, that was going on. So I asked him, cause I knew I had this trial coming up. Would you come in and testify? Mm -hmm. And he, he was, he was very, he didn't really, he didn't want to, he was very mm -hmm. reluctant. Understandably. I can't, I, I can't, I'm, you know, I'm telling you for, you know, so you'll know what, you know, I said, well, I already know, you know, I mean, what they did to me and so forth, but it would be very helpful if you would go in there as, as a former officer and tell the jury what you, what you heard and, and saw and so forth. Oh, and yeah. so he just, he was really good about it and I understood it. And, but I went back couple more times. And then finally he said, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and do it. He said, I, we can't, you know, I got to do the right thing here. Mm -hmm. So, so I put him on the witness list at the trial. He's there at the courthouse. He's sitting out there waiting for me to call him in there and put him on the witness stand. He's a listed witness. And again, the same judge Moody would not let me put him on the witness stand. I said, judge, this is a former officer of the Valparaiso Police Department. He's going to testify about his personal knowledge, what he personally heard the police say in their schemes to bogusly, falsely arrest me. Denied. Would not let me put him on the stand. So then, of course, he made sure that everything went the way it was supposed to go uh, with the police and so forth mm -hmm. with the verdict. So I appeal it. I show the seventh circuit. The judge would not allow me to put the tape recording in as evidence. The judge would not allow me to put a police officer on the stand who would mm -hmm. have enlightened the jury. And then the, and you would think, I mean, you know, a little bit early on, I, I trusted the courts you know, and so forth. I mean, well, the courts, I mean, these are judges, you know, they're going to do the right thing. And I found mm -hmm. out slowly, but surely that's just uh, not true at all. No. Uh, it's it's a bad thing these days, actually, with, with what's going on with judges. So the, the U.S. Court of Appeals then, I, you know, I, I show them all of this. I, I, I buy, I order the transcript, cost me several thousand dollars. Oh, no. So you can show the uh, the judge exactly what happened this is what the judge said not not just your this is what i think he said i'm showing them the transcript and i'm you know they have the tape recording there they have that there uh because the court has to provide that all of the, they have to transmit all that information to the appeals court so then they rule well yes the the tape recording was listed it was properly listed as as the appellant Vukadinovich uh, states, it was properly listed as an exhibit. But you know, we we allow the judge's discretion, and uh. so yeah. And, you know, if you have 
first of all, a pretrial order is, they call it the law of the case. Mm-hmm. Once you put your information on, then you have to deal with it. The judge, the each side objects to certain things, witnesses and exhibits. And when it's all said and done, the judge will, okay, I'm going to allow this. I'm not going to allow this. And then the judge will then create a pretrial order and then both sides sign it and the judge signs it. Once that happens, that's the law of the case. Once that tape recording was signed on to, and once that witness was signed on to, that was the law of the case. They should have been allowed into the trial. But things were looking so bad, the judge came to the rescue of the police. I can't let Vukadinovich put this information in front of the jury because he's going to win and the police are going to lose. So the appellate court ruled that even though I was correct, that was on the pretrial order, well, you know, we leave this discretion up to the judges, and they called it harmless error. Harmless error. Yes, it was an error, E-R-R-O-R. It was an error by the judge, but it was a harmless error. It didn't hurt anything. Uh No, the evidence I had showing the scheme and they were even laughing about it and he even said i'm gonna get the sob they called it harmless error same thing with the testimony of of the former officer well we leave that up to the discretion of the of the judge of the trial court now one of the judges was richard a posner he was one of the judges on that panel there's three judges and and the other one of the other judges was Frank Easterbrook, and we could do a show on him. I mean, there's all kinds of there's been articles. Uh, Injustice Watch has written uh, did a, a really really major article about him about how he fabricates things in his rulings and so forth. I've got it all. You know, it's in all of my book and, and so forth. Uh, so uh, so then so then what happened was fast forwarding here now. Uh, what happened was. Uh, in March of 2016, now all this po- all this police stuff uh, was coming into play. I was a teacher, and you know, as I said, they even came to my school trying to do whatever they can. Let's let's make his life hell at a school too. Maybe he'll lose his job, which will uh-huh. happen a couple of times o- over this stuff. So then, so then, uh, uh, to make a long story short, in 2016, I was I was teaching in a at a school corporation in Cedar Lake, Indiana, the Hanover Community Schools. I was there for eight years, loved it there. I mean, I mm-hmm. it was just, I loved teaching there. I had a great principal. His name was Joe Fetty. He was a, he was the principal there for, I believe, 28 years. He'd been there 30 years. State principal of the year. He hired me in. You know, we talked about things when he hired me, and he was just, and, and he was gracious enough that he, uh, I was, I, I, uh, he retired. Then another principal came in. He was a pretty good guy and everything. And then they got rid of him after a couple of years or so. And then this guy, this then they hired this guy out of Hammond, Indiana, uh, which had refused to hire me uh, a couple of years, a couple of years earlier uh, for nonsense. You know, it's all about this police stuff. They never mm-hmm. want to admit that, but that's what it's all about. So then I, I again represented myself pro se and uh, filed a federal lawsuit against the Hammond School Corporation. And we ended up settling the case uh, 
it was for a hundred thousand dollars. It was basically what I, what I would have made earned for that two year time period. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we were set for trial and, and then the, the judge kind of let him know, you know, you're in trouble here and so forth. And so he, so we had a, a settlement conference and we agreed that, okay, well, they'll pay me the money that I would have earned. And I was, okay, I was fine with that because I wouldn't have been able to uh, get any more out of a jury trial anyway. They can only award you what your actual damages are. And that's what they would have been. So then what happened was uh, going back now, Hanover now hires this guy from Hammond who was involved in the corporation there that wouldn't that wouldn't hire me, that refused to hire me. So now he's my principal now after eight years and so forth. Then he calls me in and he's, you know, well, hey, uh, you know, he starts talking about, I hope you save some of that settlement money, you know, and all, and all of that kind of stuff. Says, hey, listen, hold on here. Okay. He says, we're going to, uh, you're, you know, you're, you're out. You're not coming back here. So I said, what do you mean? He said, oh, well, we're going to do a reduction in force, force, a riff. We're going to reduce the teachers here. I, well, I said, you know what? I, I'm not buying this. Okay. I want to, I want to, uh, have a meeting with the school board. So the school board refused to meet with me. Now, your audience is listening to this. If anybody's involved with with uh, employment type things uh, or things that involve the due process of the Constitution, this is very important for them to know. So I demanded a meeting with the school board. The school board refused to meet with me. They said, well, you can talk to the superintendent, but we're not meeting with you. So I and, and again, now for your audience, always document everything. Don't call them on the phone. If you're having a problem with your employer or whoever you're dealing with, mm -hmm. don't, because later on you can't prove it. They will deny it. The burden's on you. Always document everything. And emails are a great way to do it. And, mm -hmm. and just documents that you send them, letters and so forth that you can show. But emails are perfect because it states right on there. It was sent, they received it and so forth. So I documented everything. So the school board said, no, we're not meeting with you. So then to fast forward, I file a, a federal lawsuit against the corporation. And we go, uh, it took about four years. I'm representing myself. And they had a battery of lawyers uh, in Indiana, Chicago. I, I think they had seven lawyers all, all together, you know, when it was all said and done. And then we would go, we went to trial and and then uh you know they've got their table over here with all the lawyers i'm over here at my table mm -hmm. and we went five days so we picked a jury your audience needs to understand if you ever in a jury trial do your homework on jury selection that's probably there's a lot everything's important but that's probably the most important thing because you got to mm -hmm. get jurors that are going to be fair and are going to listen to the evidence and aren't going to be biased and so mm -hmm. forth and 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 to me i wanted a very intelligent jury i want them mm -hmm. to figure out because a lot you know lies are going to come out by the mm -hmm. other side that's what lawyers do so you want jurors that are going to be able to figure things out so we we went five days it was a very it was a long trial uh the judge the judge at the beginning he was the chief judge philip simon uh, he was very uh, upset with me about me proceeding pro se. We had words over this, and this kind of goes with the territory. All pro se's <laughs> are going to go through this. So we were at a hearing about a year before the trial, and he brought it up to me. Uh, Mr. Vukadinovich, are you sure you want to represent yourself? And I'm thinking to myself, what do you mean am I sure? Of course I'm sure. I've been doing this you know, from day yeah. one here. 
And, you know, why are you even asking me this? Okay. And then he said to me, he said to me, well, you know what that's going to look like? The jurors are going to come into the trial and they're going to see you in the courtroom without a lawyer. You know what that's going to look like? He said that to me. And I said, well, you know what, Judge? Uh, you know, to, you know, the most of the people really, really have a very low opinion of lawyers. I, I think yeah. I think really it'll probably look pretty good. Mm -hmm. OK, because most people don't like lawyers. And and now he wouldn't let me tell the jury in your opening statement and so forth why I was representing myself. I really wanted the jury to know. Because uh, one of the obstacles that you have as a pro se, if you're going into a trial of any kind, civil or criminal, doesn't matter. Right away, the first thing is, well, why doesn't this person have a lawyer? Mm -hmm. He must not have a case, otherwise he would have a lawyer. So that's the first thing that they think about. So going into the trial, I knew, I because you know how they say the first impression is the most important impression? I had to let the jurors know immediately what this thing is all about. I couldn't say it to them, but I had to let them know in a certain way when I was addressing them. Mm -hmm. that, but the judge would not allow me. And I feel that that's wrong. I think you should be able to explain that kind of stuff to a jury. But this is how they this is kind of how they screw the pro se's over. Mm -hmm. So I felt actually I felt pretty good about the jury. You could just kind of feel a vibe about it. And, you know, I, I watched them, you know, as I was when the other side was up there uh, at the podium and so forth, I'd glance over. I don't want them to see me looking at them and so forth, but I'd glance over and I, I could kind of tell they were really, really paying attention what, to what was going on. So so then uh, about about a week before the actual trial, you have a pretrial hearing and to go through everything okay here's what's going to happen we're going to start the trial on this day blah 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 this is what's going what we're going to do okay so you go through things and again now the judge brings it up to me are you sure you're going to represent yourself do you want me to try to get you a lawyer and and i and you know i said now at this point now okay i try to be nice and friendly and cordial about it but now it's like you know what i said to him i said listen I said, you're beating a dead horse. Yeah. We went through yeah. this a year ago. We're, we're on the eve of trial here. No, I do not want you to find me a lawyer. Honestly, the last thing I want is a judge who's going to get one of his buddies to come. Mm -hmm. I've already been through all that nonsense and that other with the police case, how the judges want to do things. And to get if I'm going to get a lawyer, I'm going to hire my own lawyer, mm -hmm. which I didn't want a lawyer. I turned it down. Mm -hmm. And and uh, so then so then we got into issues, legal issues. And then uh, there was a, a, a pleading issue. And he said to me, he said to me, I don't see this that as an issue in this case. I said, well, what do you mean you don't see that? It is definitely an issue in this case. It's listed here. I don't see it. So I say to him, it's on page so and so. He mm -hmm. looks at it. I still don't see that here. I said, well, I can't understand why you don't see it it's written right there i said and the one thing i want i want to say here i never ever play the pro se card i never do it i know what the obstacles are going in i never ask for favoritism or sympathy please give me a break i'm pro se i have never done that and i always follow what their rules are and so forth so 
But at that point, he pushed me into it. So I said, Judge, listen, I said, and your audience should know this as well. Uh, there's a there's a Supreme Court case. It's it's Haynes versus Kerner. The Supreme Court in 1972 ruled that judges must construe pro se pleadings liberally. Judges, in other words, judges must give pro se's some latitude on when they're filing their, their written documents. Mm -hmm. Now, not, you know, this doesn't address the pro se speaking orally, but when a pro se makes, makes a statement on a pleading, if the judge says, well, you didn't write this up strong enough or whatever, under Haynes versus Kerner, the judges are obligated under the Supreme Court in Haynes versus Kerner to give some latitude to pro se pleading. So everybody should really write that down and understand that because it could be helpful to them. I've told a lot of pro se's about that. Mm -hmm. So I said to him, I said, judge, uh, you know, this thing uh, about you not seeing that there, it's clearly there. And under Haynes versus Kerner, you have to give that a liberal um, construction. You have to give that pleading some latitude. And then I'll never forget this. I wrote about this. I, he said the judge responded when I when I cited the Supreme Court case, Haynes versus Kerner. Here we go. Just like that in that tone. Here we go. In other words, here we go with the pro se stuff. Oh. So I said, so I said, what? What do you mean by that? I wanted because remember now you're on the transcript. Mm -hmm. He knew he messed up when he said that. And then I and then I took him to task with it. Mm -hmm. I said, what? What what do you mean by that? I wanted an explanation from mm -hmm. him. And it was, let's move on. So he knew right then and there I wasn't going to play games with it. Mm -hmm. And and you know, I'm sorry to have to say this. You know, everybody wants to be respectful with the judges and so forth, but when they're running all over you, yeah. you have to stand up for yourself. And most pro se's are very reluctant to do that. They're afraid, understandably, they're afraid to do so. And these judges get very intimidating with this stuff. But you have to stand up for yourself. You have to do it in a certain way. So, you know, I that was my message to him. Mm -hmm. you, know, you can play games. You can try to play games here, but I'm not going to let you do it. And it sunk in with him. So now to fast forward, we're in the trial. And at the beginning, and, oh, and by the way, uh, we had it right after that hearing. That was a hearing. And then we had a, a conference, a settlement conference. He said, let's have a settlement conference now. It's mm -hmm. off the record. The hearing's on the record. The settlement conference is off the record. And let's see if maybe we can get the case settled. There was no way I was going to settle the case. No way. Okay. You put me through all of this. Ugh. I was a good employee. Your lawyer's been lying throughout this whole thing. We're, we're literally a week away from trial. I'm trying this case. I was not going to settle that case. Honestly, there was really no amount of money that was going to do it. So then he has them go in one room with their lawyers. He has me sit there at the table and he goes back and forth a couple of times and he comes out and he says to me, well, they're willing to pay you $150,000, $150,000 to settle the case. I said, no. Mm -mm. And he said, I said, 
they're willing to give you, pay you $150,000. I said, I heard you. <laughs> and my answer is no. I am going to, these were my exact words still. I said, I'm going to expose these liars for the liars that they are. Mm -hmm. So we're going to trial. He got really mad about that. And he gave me a real dirty look. Mm. And then we parted company. No handshake or anything. I mean, I left with a dirty look. And I gave him, you know, I let him know too, you know, where mm -hmm. we're at with this. We come back in now a week later for the trial. We have jury selection. We seat the jurors. I put my, I, you know, at the beginning, he was kind of being like moody. Wouldn't let me get evidence in. Uh, he wouldn't even let me put the letter in where they refused to meet with me and so forth, which was, you know what? Is the fix in that bad mm -hmm. in these courts? I'm, you know, I'm having these thoughts. And to be quite honest about it going in, I mean, I felt so good about so, how strong the case was. And he wouldn't let me. You know, I had students that wanted to come in and testify. I had tape recordings. The, the television station was out, spoke to students. The students, we want our, we want these classes. We want these classes. They would have shown that it was a bogus reason, the riff, and, and so forth. And he wouldn't allow any of that evidence in. Mm -hmm. So the jurors aren't getting any of this evidence, just like in that police trial. So the second day of the trial, I I told my brother, I said, you know, I don't I don't think I'm gonna be able to win the case. He's not letting me put the evidence on. So he said, well, just do the best. And he gave me some good advice. He said, you know what? Forget him, forget the judge for the time being, and let the jurors understand what's going on here the best mm -hmm. you can, you know, speak, you know, uh, relate to the jurors with this thing. So so then I, I took that advice. But then something very strange in the in the middle of the trial on Wednesday, the judge, Judge Simon, did an about face. Then he started being very courteous to me. Uh, oh, take, you know, if I would say, Judge, uh, I had a mountain of evidence there. Sometimes I would need a minute to look for things. I said, Judge, I'll, I'll need a minute here to, you know, to find the document or so mm -hmm. forth, the exhibit. Oh, take all the time you need, Mr. Vukadinovich. You know, very, very cordial, kind of a different tone than, than earlier on. Earlier mm -hmm. on, it was like the message was, I told you, you should have settled the case. I think that was like the message. Mm -hmm. And now this is what you get. I think that was the message early mm -hmm. on. So so then, then he started giving me favorable rulings. I was getting evidence in and so forth. I had friends asking me and saying to me, and my brother, and a lot of people were there at the, at the trial and saying to me, boy, the judge has really changed a lot here. Yeah. So what's happened here? So I only had two, two explanations for that. One was I actually wrote a letter just and just so your audience will will know this as well uh, in federal litigation uh, the the country is divided up you know we have nine Supreme Court justices there are nine of them mm -hmm. and each justice is responsible for a certain the air they call it circuits in the country mm -hmm. I'm in the seventh circuit I believe there are nine I, there might be more. Uh, there might be 11, but I'm in the Seventh Circuit. And at the time, Justice Elena Kagan was the justice in charge of the Seventh Circuit. So if uh, so, you know, they're basically there to monitor is everything going how it's supposed to be going within the circuit. I'm in charge of the circuit. So what I did was after after uh, the, uh, the judge made the comments to me about here we go, 
about the pro se thing and everything, mm -hmm. Haynes versus Kerner and so forth. I wrote a letter to Judge uh, Justice Kane, and I explained this. I said, Justice, I have a, a trial coming up here in front of this judge. And he was making, you know, kind of negative comments when I brought up Haynes versus Kerner. I'm a little bit concerned going into the trial here, you know, that this is kind of what's going to be happening at the trial. Would you please keep an eye on, on the case here somehow? And uh, so I didn't know, you, and you never know, are they going to contact the judge? Are they going to say what's going on? Mm -hmm. But I wanted the judge to know, to know this. No, I agree. So, so I, you know, it was, my thought process was, well, and my brother said to me, he said, you know, that, Supreme Court justice might have asked him, how's the trial going? Mm -hmm. Possibly, we don't know, but something changed. Or, and, or, the judge might have figured out, well, you know what? Vukadinovich actually knows what he's doing here. And, you know, maybe I shouldn't have been treating him like I mm -hmm. treat the pro se's and so forth, because he's standing up to me with this. He's presenting his case. Maybe I should actually do what I'm supposed to be doing and actually be a fair judge here. And he became a fair judge from that point on. Now, I wasn't happy about the first two days, you know, how things, how he was doing things. I wasn't happy about that at all. And still, I'm not happy about it. But but I will have to give him credit where credit's due. I mean, I'm very hard on, on judges, but there are some good judges out there to, mm -hmm. to be, you know, we have to make that clear here. They're not all bad. There are some, not enough. There's too many bad judges, but I have to, you know, call a spade a spade. Mm -hmm. At least he decided in his mind, I'm going to do the right thing. I, I have a feeling he probably has has some guilt feelings like, you know, I shouldn't have done what I did. But he at least was good enough that I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do things correct from here on here and do things right. So to make a long story short, we go, you know, we finish the trial. On Friday, we finish it in late afternoon. And then, and then you know, we do our closing statements. And I had 50 minutes. I do mine pro se. The other team, they, they decided to have two lawyers go up and address the jury. So one went up, addressed the jury. Then the other one went up and addressed the jury. And the judge said, and as a plaintiff now, so your audience understands, in either a civil or if you're in a civil trial, you're the plaintiff. You get the option. You can you get a certain time limit. It's all it's different in every case, depending on how long the case is and, and the issues and so forth. How how long how much time you'll have for your closing argument for your closing argument. So the judge decided that we would get each side would get 50 minutes, 5-0, 50 minutes. So mm -hmm. the judge said, OK, Mr. Vukadinovich, you're the plaintiff. You can do all yours at one time or you can divide it up. It's up to you. So I decided that I would divide mine up. Mm -hmm. I would the first time 30 minutes because I, you know, you want the last word. Oh, yes. I'm going to say the, the lawyers are going to go up there and, and if they say something that isn't true or whatever, and you can't rebut it, this is all the jury knows about this. Mm -hmm. So I went 30 and 20. <clears throat> so then I, how are we doing with time here? Well, um, we've got like maybe 10 minutes. Okay. I want to make sure that because you probably got some other questions here too. Because once I get going with this stuff, I I, I kind of get on oh, the roll. You're doing great. So then, so then, my first thirty minutes, I went up there. I had my legal pad with me. I had everything written down, the points I wanted to address to the jury, and so forth, exhibits, and so forth. And then they did. And then their two lawyers went up there and addressed the jury and gave them all a, a bunch of nonsense and so forth. And then now I got my 20 minutes. So I go back up to the podium 
right directly in front of the jury. They physically picked the podium, put it right in front of the jury, and you're speaking to the jury. I, I didn't take a legal pad with me. I just spoke to the jury from my heart. Mm -hmm. I think that's very important. See, sometimes mm -hmm. everybody gets wrapped up into the legalities. And, you know, you got people sitting there that are human beings. You know, I mean, there are certain things you have to cover legally and so forth. But you have to speak from the heart. I lost my job and I, I wanted to speak to them from, from my heart and I and explain to them, look at what these people did here. Mm -hmm. And they saw it all. I put these people on the stand and and backing up now, I should I should uh, the just backing up a second here because this is very important. The the lawyers for the school corporation uh, did something that was very, very stupid. At the end of the trial, they recalled the school board president to the witness stand. I should have said this before I started talking about the closing argument. So mm -hmm. I, I was thinking, what in the world would you be recalling her back on the stand? I put her on the stand. They put they put her on the stand already. And now they're putting her now recalling her. Now she's on the third time. And to me, quite honest, I mean, I I mean, I, I made mincemeat out of her the first time around. Mm -hmm. And then when they put her on. So they put her on the stand and they asked her three questions, three short questions. Her name was Dixon, Mary Joan Dixon. She was at the time president of the school board. Uh, Miss Dixon, uh, did did Miss Kaiser, the superintendent, did Miss Kaiser uh, provide all of the due process that Mr. Vukadinovich was entitled to? Yes, she says, yes. That's all she said. Second, and then the second question, did Miss Kaiser provide all of the information that Mr. Vukadinovich requested? Yes, she said. Third question, last question. Did Miss Kaiser answer all of Mr. Vukadinovich's questions at his due process meeting with you? Yes, was her answer. Just, you know, three, the lawyers had, obviously it was so easy to see how they had all this set up. Just say yes when we ask you the question. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, yes. That was it. Well, unfortunately for them, I get a chance now to go up there and cross-examine her. And I couldn't wait to get up there. So I got up to the podium and I, I said, well, Miss Dixon, now your lawyer just asked you three questions and you answered yes to every question. So let's go through those three questions. So we're real clear here. When your lawyer asked you if Miss Kaiser asked, provided all my due process I was entitled to, you said yes. Is that correct? Yes, she said. And I said, and then she asked you if she provided all the information I requested. Is that correct? You said yes. She said yes. And I said, and, and then she asked you, did uh, did Ms. Kaiser answer all of my questions that I asked her at the do? And then she said, yes. I said, so that's correct. You said yes. And then I said to her, after I wanted to get this in the jury's heads here now, mm -hmm. I said, now, were you at the due process meeting with me and Miss Kaiser. Were you there at the meeting with us? And she wouldn't answer. So I said to the judge, judge, we need an answer here. So the judge ordered her to answer. Mm -hmm. I said, well, I'm going to ask you again. Were you at the meeting with me and Miss Kaiser at the due process meeting, so-called due process meeting? Were you there? And at the beginning, everything was, you know, bold and confident. Yes, yes, yes. 
She puts her head down like a whipped puppy, puts her head down, looks down, and goes, no. You could barely hear. So I said, can't hear here. What, what, what's your answer here? And the judge, I believe, instructed her, we, we need to hear the answer. She said, no, I was not there. Okay. Then I said to her, well, if you were not at the meeting, then how would you know that Miss Kaiser, the superintendent, answered all of my questions? How would you know that? Mm -hmm. And then, I mean, it was bad. It was actually pathetic. You could hardly hear her. Well, I guess I don't know. Oh. And again, I believe I had to get, you know, we had to get this out a little bit louder here. Yeah. Okay. I, I guess I don't know. And I said, well, I guess you lied. You lied. Mm -hmm. And that was it. And then I went back to my table and I felt just so strong now. And I could, I could feel the vibe. Mm -hmm. when, when, when jurors know that witnesses lie to them, that's pretty much it. Right. That's pretty much it. You lie to me. When the jur that the jurors when they're sitting there, well, now you're lying to me. You know, they lied to me as an employee all that time. That's one thing. But when the jurors at the testimony, the testimony is directed to the jurors. Now, now they lie to the jurors. So mm -hmm. then fast forward now. We're into the evening now. Oh, well, we did the closing argument, and the judge said to me, and I talked and I used the word lies. All my friends were saying to me, you know be nice and and uh you know don't say lies don't call them liars that'll turn off the jurors and you know i'm like you know what i'm gonna be myself right okay i'm gonna be myself you start becoming somebody that you're not and you know sugarcoating things mm -hmm. i'm sorry but i call a spade a spade that's just you know it's that's how i do it mm -hmm. people are free to do things how they want but, you know, they lied to me. The evidence showed they lied. The jurors saw it. I'm calling it out for what it is. So then I I, I said, I, I gave them the exhibits. I referred them. I refreshed their memories on the testimony. I said, they lied. They lied. They lied. They lied. And then the judge said to me, and he already told us, I'm going to let you know when you have five minutes left, and I'm going to let you know when you have a minute left. Both sides, he would tell us that. So when we're in the argument, he would say, yeah, five minutes, one minute. Well, then he said, Mr. Bogdanovich, you have one minute, okay? And they, they follow that. That's it. At one minute, you don't finish the sentence or anything. That's it. So so then, okay, now I have one minute left. And then just something, I did something I did not plan at all or think about at all. It was just a, a, what, just a normal, you know, reaction. Mm -hmm. He said, you have one minute. And I turned around and... And I pointed my left hand out with my left index finger pointed out at the at their table, the lawyers, the defendants, the school people and so forth. And I and I said to the jury, look at them. Look at them. They lied to you. Look at them. I said that two or three times. And mm -hmm. I had my point. And I know that really upset the, 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 the lawyers, their lawyers. And they were sitting there. And, you know, as I was doing, it was like, well, you know, I did it. And it was just, uh, you know, spontaneous. And, okay, now is the judge going to, you know, say anything about this? And and it, and are they going to object? 
you know, is the lawyer going to object? Oh, that's out of line, you know, or whatever, all of that nonsense. But then that, that lawyer knew if that lawyer would have objected and the judge would have denied the, now, you know, it would have been good if, for the for the lawyers if the judge would have said sustain Mr. Vukadinovich, uh, cool it or whatever. Then mm -hmm. it's like, oh, you know, the jurors, then he shouldn't have been doing that. But they didn't do it because the judge probably would have denied it. It was, you know, you guys came in here and lied. He's calling you out here. He has the right to do that. So that's how the trial ended. It ended with me pointing at the at the table. And I said to the jury, look at them. Mm -hmm. Look at these liars, the liars that they are. Okay. And then deliberations, several hours, about three and a half hours in. We were out in the hallway and so forth, waiting for the verdict. The... Um, judge came out and i thought he was gonna uh he came over to them he came over to me and i thought he was probably gonna say well it's friday evening no verdict yet let's let the jurors go home we'll come back monday and i i really didn't want that because i knew i had that that i had them there at the end you know with how things finished with the trial and then over the weekend things can kind of like oh you know the you know the impact isn't there but he said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to try to get a verdict tonight. We're going to let them go to lunch. And then we're going to tell them that they can deliberate over lunch if they choose. They don't have to. But if they want to talk about it, deliberate, that's fine. I, I said, fine. I was actually hoping he wasn't going to say come back Monday. So yeah. they come, So then so then an hour and a half later, his uh, his uh, office person comes out and he and she tells us, and I thought for sure this time they are going to tell them to go and we'll come back Monday. So she comes out. She says, we have a jury note. And I don't know if if you, if you and, and your audience have ever seen the, the movie The Verdict with Paul Newman. Uh, I saw that a while ago. It's been it's a, a while. Great movie. Yeah, it's a it great is. movie. Uh, he was a down and out alcoholic lawyer. Yes. Battling these insurance companies, <laughs> mm -hmm. and getting the run around from the judges and so forth. And And then at the end of the trial... At the end of the trial, there was a jury note. Uh, they were deliberating, and the jury told the judge, "We have a jury note." And the note was the the note was they had to read the note out loud. The note was, "Can we award more damages than they're asking for?" That was the jury note in in the verdict. People should watch it if they can. Mm -hmm. The verdict with Paul Newman. So now I, in my case now, we have a jury note. So I'm I'm thinking right away, man, in the verdict. That note was about the damages mm -hmm. that was going through my head. So we go in there to read the jury note. Sometimes, you know, you never know what the notes are going to be. The jury just might be asking a question about evidence or something. Mm -hmm. could be anything. So the judge says, okay, we got a jury note. I'm going to read it. So he reads it. And the jury note was, we need a calculator. We need a calculator. Now, why would you need a calculator? You're going to figure out the damages. Mm -hmm. So everybody, they were stunned. I mean, I wish I could have had a picture of their table with the lawyers and, and, oh, it excellent. Was just, it was unbelievable. <laughs> so then uh, it, we went up, we went back outside after that. And my friend came into our, our room there. They have a room for each side. And he said, man, you're not going to believe you should, you should see them out there, man. Nobody's talking. They're lawyers, the school, the corporation people and so forth. It was like the twilight zone. You know, it was like everybody was frozen out there. There was like, how, how could this happen? How could this guy come in here and beat us without without a lawyer? Mm -hmm. And and boy, oh boy, I wish I could have had a picture of that to put in the book. Yeah, uh, really. Uh, so so we then we get called back in and the jury awarded me 
dollars and so forth and some change. And uh, so I, I received over, you know, and then they had to, then the judge determined they had to pay me costs, you know, for depositions and, and witness fees and all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, it was well over $200,000. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, I mean, it's important to go through trials. Uh, too many cases, in my opinion, get settled, particularly civil rights cases, mm -hmm. things that are going on with police cases and so forth, because a check is made, insurance companies pay those checks, and then the same offenders go out there and do it again. Mm -hmm. It's no money out, out of their pockets. So I feel like people should take their cases to trial on principle mm -hmm. and prove their case. This is what this is what can affect change. And most people, you know, when they have lawyers right away, the lawyers want the money. Oh, there's a chance. And then the lawyers don't get any money then. See, it's all lawyer stuff. That's why, you know what? I don't want any lawyers. Right. Right. No lawyers. So that's what happened. That's what happened. You have to be diligent. You have to do your homework. And I know I've read a lot of horror stories about the family court cases. Uh, I saw some of the interviews that you've done. Uh, and and uh, it's horrendous. It's a big problem in the family courts, for sure. In mm -hmm. the domestic uh, cases with the uh, child custody type cases, mm -hmm. it seems like the 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 mothers, for the most part, not always mothers, sometimes fathers as well, mm -hmm. but it seems like it's mostly mothers for some reason, are just getting railroaded uh, terribly, terribly, mm -hmm. and they have nowhere to go. And uh, I know we're running short on time here. I wanted to talk a lot about uh, the the part of the process of when judges uh, abuse litigants and disrespect them and and do things contrary to what the rules and and fairness dictates and sometimes even corruptly act. Mm -hmm. uh, then uh, there's just really no place to go. You can file a complaint. And we need a procedure in the country where where there can be a meaningful process. And we don't have one. And I think maybe we can do should do a show on it. I actually wanted to cover that a lot today. But if 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 I could just have maybe a couple of minutes, I was going to sure. explain. Uh, I do have a uh, the this judge uh, Posner. He heard about how I won the trial, and he contacted me. He said, "I." I read about your case and wow, I can't believe you were able to win the trial without a lawyer. Uh, I have now left the seventh circuit. I got disenchanted with what was going on with the other judges at the seventh circuit. Mm -hmm. So I've been, you know, he was there for almost 36 years on the federal court of appeals in Chicago. And then he, uh, and then he decided he took up a cause for pro says that, he was basically screwing pro se's over for a good 35 years. And he basically admits to that mm. publicly. And then he saw the light and he publicly told the New York times, you know, I just for, you know, I was in a slumber, he called it for over 35 years. And then he said publicly, uh, the pro the judges at the seventh circuit are, are abusing the pro se's and I left. And then he formed this uh, company called the Posner center of justice for pro se's which was going to be to, to help the pro se's with their cases, knowing as a judge what they were going through. And he actually said publicly that the judges at the Seventh Circuit considered the pro se's, these are his words now, he cons they considered the pro se's as trash, mm -hmm. trash. Those were Judge Posner's words, okay? So he asked me if I would come on board with him. Hey, you can be helpful to us here. Well, you know, 
I, I had a still a bad taste in my mouth. He was on that panel that ruled with the, you know, with the police with all that stuff were okay. It was okay for the judge not to allow the evidence in and put the, the my tape recording and, and the police. So he was on that panel. So I, you know, but then I thought, well, you know, it's mm -hmm. very rare for a judge to turn around after 35 years and say, Hey man, they're, they're, they're screwing the pro says over in our courts. So I thought, well, let me think about this. You know, maybe, maybe, you know, he's okay now. We'll see. So then, you know, so we emailed a little bit. We talked a little bit on the phone and so forth. And, and he invited me to come up to Chicago and have dinner with him, him and his wife. And I did that. And then he, uh, so I accepted his offer. So, so then uh, to work for him uh, at the Posner Center. And then he, he appointed me as the executive director of the of the Posner Center. And then we became, we became, you know, I had to go up there for lunches and meetings and so forth, and we would talk and mm -hmm. so forth. So then he, he, after he came clean publicly about what the judges were doing to the pro se's, then he came clean to me about my case. Mm -hmm. He disclosed to me how he felt bad about it, that he allowed, mm -hmm. there was another judge there, his name was Michael Caney. K-A-N-E-E, K-A-N-N-E. He's from Rensselaer, Indiana, which is only about a half hour away from where I live here. He'd been on the appellate court there in Chicago, and he didn't like me. There was bad blood between me and him from court stuff, you know, when I'm dealing with all this stuff going on with my employment and all of that. You know, these courts look at you when you fight back. These judges look at you as a troublemaker. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And he actually called me that at, at an oral argument one time, which was totally inappropriate and, and out of line and so forth. But that's how they do things. So then he approached Judge Posner and said, hey, listen, man, you know, we can't, Vukadinovich can't win this case. You're on the panel. you got to make sure Vukadinovich doesn't win. And Judge Posner accommodated him. He accommodated him. They used his influence, had to fix the decision, fixed mm -hmm. it. So he disclosed it to me. So I filed an F, I filed a judicial misconduct complaint with the Seventh Circuit, and I put a written I put an affidavit in there. I signed it under penalty of perjury. I couldn't have done no more than I did. So I file it, and then now remember at the time now. Caney is still there at the Seventh Circuit, still a judge. Now, at this point, Judge Posner's retired for a few months or so, maybe a year or so. can't remember exactly the time period. But he lives in Chicago and so forth. And then the chief judge of the Seventh Circuit, Diane Sykes, she puts an order out, on a, not on the merits of the case. Well, uh, Vukadinovich waited so long to file... Mm -hmm this complaint uh people die people move uh you know they can't be located all of that nonsense so and it's been such a long time she said it was impossible to to investigate it so first of all as far as people dying at the time nobody was dead mm -mm. in fact caney is right there with you probably right down the hallway, you mm -hmm. could have easily have, you know, talked to him about this, got a statement from him. And by the way, Haney never denied on the record that he had to, had the decision fixed. He never mm -hmm. denied that on the record. And then you could have picked up the phone, 
and call Judge Posner. He lives in Chicago. Ask him to come in, talk to you. You've known him for a lot of years. You could have talked to him on the phone. You didn't do that. Mm -hmm. So don't give us the nonsense about we can't locate people. Caney was right down the hallway from you. You knew Judge Posner's in Chicago. And as far as why it took so long, I addressed that in the in the complaint. I put like five pages of that in there, why it took so long. This was just closed to me somewhat recently. I couldn't file something from years ago that that wasn't told to me yet. Now deal with it. So then I filed an, and then and then I filed a, another a review. You have the right to file a review. I did that. And then they again, they just rubber stamped her uh, ruling on it. And then but there's no generally almost always the judge's names will appear on order. It'll say who the judges were. Okay, so they have what they call a judicial council. Every circuit, it's a judicial council. So you don't know who the judges were on that particular council. So, but there's no names. So I messaged, I emailed the clerk, Chris Conway is his name of the Seventh Circuit. I said, hey, listen, uh, I've received this order and I want to know who the judges were that were involved in this uh, rubber stamping of the judge's decision. And then he uh, sends me a letter and he says in a letter, and by the way, I've got a copy of that letter in my book that's coming out here in a couple of days. I put a copy of it in there. He says to me, the order speaks for itself. Again, nonsense. It doesn't address at all. who the, I want to know who the judges are. We, I have a right to know who the judges were that made this decision. Mm -hmm. It's normal. It's how it's done. Why are you trying to keep this secret? Okay. So they wouldn't tell me. So then I filed a I filed a petition with the judicial con, uh, judicial conference of the United States in Washington D.C. I report all this to them. That's the next procedure. A bunch a lot of time goes by, I hear nothing. So I contact them on their website. What's the status of my petition? No answer. Nothing. I write a letter to Chief Justice John Roberts. I explain all this to him. What I just said here. Uh, I contact my senator in Indiana, uh, Todd Young. The, mm -hmm. I contact him because they it's a federal thing. Would you please, would you please uh, contact the administrative office of the United States courts, find out what the what's going on here? Why is there no ruling here? Why isn't this being looked at? What's the status of my petition? Well, I'll, I'll I and then he sent me an email back and I put a and I talked about that in my new book. And he said, Well, I contacted him. I'll let you know what, what I hear. Well, again, uh, you know, time goes by. Hey, have you heard anything? No, I haven't heard anything. I'll let you know. So I so then I said, Well, you know what? I would like to see a copy of your communication. If you send him a letter or email or whatever, I would like to see a copy of that. You're my I'm a constituent. You said you did this for me. Now I would like to see because at that time, at that point in time, I started having doubts if he even actually did that. And the reason I'm bringing this up to your audience is this is things that people need to be doing. They need to be taught, contacting their people that could actually have some influence with a lot of these things. Mm -hmm. So I wanted him, first of all, now I'm not trusting him because he won't show me the letter. Okay. So it's the same old thing, government taking care of government. Mm -hmm. So I wrote about all this in the book. It's uh, the judiciary is a secret society. Uh, the government protects the government. Uh, it's done in secret, and we need to do a show on how to correct that part of things. And there are ways to correct it. 
Dictor, I'm talking about now federal litigation now. State litigation is different. It's handled differently, but there's procedures there as well, such as uh, Dick Durbin is the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee. So I contacted him on his website and told him about all this. And I said to him, you need to have congressional hearings in public and you need to call these judges in and question them about these things. And, you know, we need to remove these people. There's a, mm -hmm. there's a, a process for that. Mm -hmm. And people need to bombard the, if it's federal stuff, the senators in their states. And if it's, if it's state stuff, governors appoint the, a lot of times in most of the states, the governors will appoint the state court judges. You contact the governor. Hey, this state court judge is a bad judge. We need to get, you know, we need to get rid of this judge. They need to get out and vote and, and vote the judges out and bombard these people. Mm -hmm. That's how we're going to get this thing done. And if we do a show about that, I got some uh, ideas about that. Well, and we will. Am I allowed to say what the name of your new book is or do you want to say it? <laughs> please do. Uh, please do. Yes, it's, it's called Rogues in Black Robes. Rogues in Black Robes. And I in uh, I use the, the example of the case that I just talked about here at the Seventh Circuit. That's a primary part of the book. And then I talk about you know, uh, things involved in the judiciary and, and so forth. But that's the prime example that I use in the book. Mm -hmm. And by the way, uh, I don't know if your audience remembers uh, the uh, from years back, the Roman Polanski uh, situation. Oh, yeah. With a young lady that uh, Roman Polanski got her, uh, took her for a drive and took her to Jack Nicholson's house, the actor. Mm -hmm. And he drugged her and and uh she was only 13 years old mm -hmm. and 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 under the law statutorily raped her and then he ended up pleading guilty and then fled the country uh so he wouldn't have to go to prison it was a big it was actually an international story and her name is samantha geimer uh she was a young lady at the time now an adult of course she wrote the foreword to my book oh so, wow so it's you know i'm very you know very uh excited about about that uh, that she that she did that because uh, she didn't have to, but she got she was disenchanted with when the Polanski uh, thing was going on with the proceedings. She got really uh, disenchanted with the judiciary and actually and how she was treated throughout the whole ordeal. So she wrote she wrote the forward to the book. So uh, it's it's honestly I know everybody. You know, I don't I don't go out there and, you know, and I, if people want to, you know, want to, you know, buy the book, that's fine. Uh, but I truly honestly believe I speak from the heart and I truly honestly believe, you know, when you read books that lawyers write about things, it's like, you know, I have people, hey, you should read this book that this like, no, I don't want to read any lawyers books about after the fact, you know, well, my question is this, did that lawyer really do anything as a lawyer to help correct things? You know, or did that lawyer play along? Because most lawyers, you know, there are some lawyers that are good lawyers. I can, I can't, you know, then, you know, then the judicial, you know, then I, I can't win any cases and so forth. But you know what? I'm sorry. Stand up, you know, like you're supposed to and do what's right. And most of them don't do that. They write books and so forth, you know. So mine, hey, I, I put it out there. I, I name names. I put the judges' names out there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I and I and I say they're corrupt. You know, if, if I believe a judge is corrupt, I say it. 
You know, mm -hmm. I say it right in the book. I mean, I've had my friends will say, aren't you worried about being sued? I'm not worried at all about being sued by any judge that I call a corrupt lawyer. Mm -hmm. If they want to sue me, they can sue me and then we can have a trial and I will prove at a trial how corrupt that judge is. So I wrote my first book, Motion for Justice, I Rest My Case. I mm -hmm. called them out by name, didn't get sued. I call out these judges, uh, Moody, Caney, and then I talk about a lot of other judges in other cases, corrupt judges and so forth. So I've got it all in there. People want to know the straight scoop from the inside, and I've got everything pretty well documented. I can back up everything that I say, and I've got, you know, I put it out there. I, I you know, I don't worry about uh well what's politically correct well, maybe i should have you write the forward in my third book i would be happy to actually i i wrote a forward for another uh uh warrior of of um of injustice i i call him uh tom scott out of california he wrote a book um uh, and i wrote the forward to his book uh, oh that would about be a cool. year ago or so I'll, I'll write your forward to your oh book. yeah because it's dealing with the federal court yeah oh oh i well yeah, if, it won't be, be a problem. <laughs> uh, not at all. Not at all. I'll, I'll be happy to. Awesome. Well, you know what? Um, how can people reach you if they have any questions? Yes, I have a me uh, email address, uh, motion for justice, M O T I O N F O R J U S T I C E at gmail.com. Okay. Well, and uh, then. Oh, if go people, ahead. If people somehow forget to write it down or whatever, can't remember it, it's on my website. And if I could say, if oh, I yes. a couple of seconds here, uh, my website has a lot of interviews that I've done, such as this one, and and a lot of writings. I've written op eds in the Washington Examiner and letters to the editor and op eds in the American Thinker and and. Uh, um, a lot of interviews uh, and so forth. And I do a lot of blogs. I've written a mm -hmm. lot of blogs and I get right down to things in the blogs and they can read, they can uh, read. And in fact, some of the things we talked about here, like the Judiciary Act of 1789, I've written things about that, that people can read uh, off of my website. So uh, I don't tell people they have to go out and buy my book. If they do, I think they'll get a lot of information that they wouldn't otherwise get. Uh, but if they go on my website, they don't have to buy anything. They can get information on there that might be helpful to them. And certainly at the very least, they will be very enlightened as to, as to what's going on in, in the judiciary mm -hmm. in the country for sure. It's www.brianvukadenovich, B-R-I-A-N-V-U-K-A-D-I-N-O-V-I-C-H.com. That's my website. Okay. I'll put those in the podcast notes. Very good. Uh, thank you so much for your time, but uh, don't jump off. Salam the Gal is a podcast to help the public understand what really goes on in these family courtrooms. I'm your host, Marianne Petrie, author of Dismantling Family Court Corruption, Why Taking the Kids Was Not Enough, and Cry Out for Justice, Poems of Truth. And book three will be coming out probably in a couple of months. And so uh, uh, book, book two 
will be coming out in a couple of days, actually. Oh, for you and Is yeah, it, for, for me, oh, it'll I'm be sorry. a couple months. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Marianne. I'm sorry. I, I, I thought you were I'm sorry. No, you're fine. You're fine. So uh, thank you so very much. Thank you, Marianne. I really appreciate the invite. I, I really do. We'll do it again. Thank you. Very good. Thank you.